In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. As we prayed in the great litany, by the mystery of thy holy incarnation, by thy holy nativity and submission to the law, by thy baptism, fasting, and temptation, good Lord, deliver us. This is the third time in a century that Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday occurred on the same day in the West. The first was 79 years ago in 1945. The last time, six years ago, February 14, 2018, you'll recall, I know you will, that it was on Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday that the murders at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland took place. Between Plantation, where I went to high school, and Boca Raton, where I served at my first pastorate, that February 14th, Valentine's Day, Ash Wednesday, brought an ironic conversion of this picture in the media. Do you, re do you recall it? The picture, of the, the picture of the Parkland mother weeping with her arm around another mother with a Valentine's Day pendant around her neck and a cross of ashes on her forehead. And of course, this Ash Wednesday slash Valentine's Day brought the shootings in Kansas City. At the end of the celebration of the Chiefs Super Bowl victory, and as we gathered here at the cathedral to receive ashes on our foreheads that day, Canon Patricia Orlando sagely reminded us that the ashes tell us first, how fragile we are, that we are but dust, and to dust we shall return. But second, that the ashes form a cross on our foreheads, because death is not our end, because of Christ's death for us. And then third, that the deepest secret of the universe is that because of Christ's resurrection and ongoing life for and in us, the cross is one huge Valentine's heart depicting the love of God, our Heavenly Father. Today's great litany, which was the first great prayer of the English Reformation, along with today's biblical texts, remind us of three things. Lent unites us with the baptized Christ who underwent the inundating baptism of death and resurrection. Second, Lent unites us with the fasting Christ who underwent the deprivation of the desert where he said no to daily sustenance and no to human fellowship where he knew only the fellowship of beasts and angels. And then that other voice in the wilderness where third, Lent unites us with the tempted Christ who heard the whispers of Satan, the accuser, the devil, the divider. First, by thy baptism, good Lord, deliver us. 
In his submission to the drowning waters of baptism, Jesus begins the journey of becoming sin for us, becoming cursed for us, bearing our sins and taking the full hurricane of God's righteous judgment of our sins into himself. On the day of atonement, beast is slain and the altar is sprinkled with some of the blood and the people are sprinkled with more of the blood, symbolically drowning the presence of God and symbolically drowning us in the blood. On Calvary, Jesus will stand in that gap between God and his people and with his arms outstretched in love, drown the wrath of judgment in his love. The apostle Peter today invites you and me to take our place in that baptismal drowning. Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Because baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Two, by thy fasting, good Lord, deliver us. In his 40 days of abstinence from sustenance and human fellowship, Christ trained his appetite so that his bread would be to do the will of God, his Father. And in the silence of the wilderness, to hear really the one voice that counts, his Father's. Lent invites us, indeed demands, that we pay attention to the fact that we are creatures of appetite, each one of us driven by some sort of hunger. God claims these appetites for himself, and at Lent we surrender them to him. For the gospel says our appetites were ultimately made to be satisfied in and only in his love. Augustine put it well in his confessions. God, you have made us for yourself so that our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And Thomas Cramner, the chief architect of the English Re Reformation, his adage was along these lines, what the heart wants, the mind justifies and the will chooses. What the heart loves, the mind dwells on and the will goes after. The season of Lent brings an invitation to join Jesus in the wilderness and get an, an appetite adjustment. What would be good for your soul? To surrender for a season chocolate, coffee, tea? I'm not really sure what's hard about that. CNN, Fox, shopping channels, home renovation shows, Netflix at night. Now that's kind of hard. <laughs> online gaming, online places you shouldn't be in the first place. Third, by thy temptation, good Lord, deliver us to use his powers to treat the mere symptoms, change this stone to bread, temptation one, instead of the deepest causes, 
physical hunger instead of separation from the source of life, life itself. Second temptation, to sell his soul for the false promise of earthly reward. All this is mine if you just bow down. And third, to use religion, throw yourself off the parapet and let the angels catch you. To use religion to force God's will to his rather than submit his to God's will. Of the Garden of Gethsemane, and he could very well have said it about the wilderness of temptation, C.S. Lewis once quipped something like, how horrible it would have been had the Father rather than the Son said, not my will but thine. What about temptations for you and me? Number one temptation, primo, to think that there's any other way to a relationship with God than through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, there is no stairway to heaven, no way to make yourself good enough. That would make a mockery of the incarnation. He had to come down because we could never get up. There's no hoping that God will look at your life and see that the good outweighs the bad, no matter how good the good is. And I know there's a lot of good in the room, maybe a little bad too. That would make a mockery of the bloody mess that the cross is. The second temptation, I take advantage of the fact that this year Lent begins on Valentine's Day. The second temptation is to give up on love. In a First Things article this week, Father Brian Graby asks, what do sackcloth and ashes on the one hand and roses and chocolates on the other have to do with one another? Penitential fasting and romantic indulgence? Well, maybe they have everything to do with each other. Graby reminds us that according to one of the traditions, the original St. Valentine was a third century Roman priest who secretly and illegally married young couples in defiance of Emperor Claudius II's ban on marriage. See, Claudius II didn't think that married men made good soldiers, so he forbade marriage. And after his arrest, Valentine continued to evangelize from his prison cell until he suffered martyrdom on February 14th in the year of our Lord, 269. And then according to one legend, he left behind a note for a young convert, perhaps encouraging her in her faith and signed it, from your Valentine. So indeed, roses wilt, chocolate melts, but St. Valentine wanted to remind us that Christianity is at bottom and all the way through a love story, a love story so magnificently displayed in a man and a woman together in marriage. God who didn't give up on the errant couple in the garden. God who didn't let Gomer go her way. God who came leaping over the mountain for his Shulamite lover. God who came for his bride in person and loves her despite her heresies, her faithlessness, her every attempt to wriggle free. God who inspires a young Dietrich Bonhoeffer, brilliant young theologian from a very spoiled background, but who has learned about Jesus 
who in despair of the cultural apostasy of the German church and its disparagement of Jews, one of Bonhoeffer's father was the chief psychologist in Berlin. One of his main professors was Adolf von Harnack, who was in fact a neighbor and got to know him pretty well. Harnack was among those who taught that, who kind of wrote Jesus out of the picture and just talked about a generic God the Father and the brotherhood of all men, except because of teaching from Hegel in the early 19th century, what God the Father meant of all meant was he was really the father of the German people because they were the smart, the enlightened, the culturally the cultural elites who were here to bring everybody else along. And what the brotherhood of all meant was really us, the folk, the people, because we're the smart ones, we're the good ones, we're the pure ones, and we're going to lead everybody else along. And Bonhoeffer, as much as he appreciated the, the profound teaching of his professors, especially Harnack, realized that you move Jesus out of the equation and you're going to make a God out of something else. And so he came to the United States in 1930, hoping to study, hoping to get a different point of view in theological studies, only to be profoundly disappointed because the American theologians weren't as smart as the German theologians, but they had done the same thing. They had moved Jesus out of the picture until Bonhoeffer started going to a black church in New York City. And in the black church that he attended, he found a vibrantly alive Jesus in the spirituals, in the preaching, in the people who love Jesus. And then he traveled around the South and he realized that, that, that here was a church that was able to resist the oppression, the being treated badly, the second-class citizenship that was imposed upon people because they knew that God loved them in Jesus Christ. And so Bonhoeffer goes back to Germany and he is determined to resist the forces in Germany that were doing to Jewish people what was happening to blacks in America. And in the name and for the love of Jesus Christ, and for the love of Jews who were being gassed, for the love of fellow apostate Germans who were so confused, for the love of courageous black Christian Americans back in uh, black Christian Americans, and obdurate white theologically tone deaf Americans, he worked to do everything in his power to stand against the evil of Nazi Germany. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that martyrdom was the end of his earthly story. Hanged just before the Allies liberated Berlin. But a martyrdom of love, a love of Jesus, a love that because it bespeaks the eternal love of God in Christ does not wilt and does not melt. One could, friends, on this day also mention Alexei Navalny, who died just this week, who converted in the midst of his struggle to stand for justice in Russia, who converted from atheism to the Russian Orthodox Church so that his death of resistance to evil takes on the cast, I suggest, of a martyrdom in service to Christ. 
this Lent, may Christ's baptism make yours and mine take, truly take, washing away indulgences and inclinations and fantasies and agendas of self. This Lent, may Christ's fasting empower us to say no to mere self-satisfaction and say yes to a hunger for righteousness and a thirst for God. And may Christ's temptation create in us a like willingness to say, as he said, for love of thee, not my will, but thine. And for love of those whom you love, not my way, but thine. Amen.